1: The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over a 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes.
0: Ch-ch-chumba. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
1: The world is filled with many questions, such as, did giants exist?
0: What is junk DNA? Does it mean that you're trash? Do you ever wonder if aliens have underwater bases
1: in our oceans, and that's why there are so many UFO sightings off the coasts of islands all over the
0: world? How serious even is climate change, and when should we start building our rafts? Hello everyone, you may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name is Bruna. and you don't recognize me from anything yet. Together, we're two scientists who explore the answers to these questions and many, many more in our new podcast, Mystery Mystery of Everything. Everything, available everywhere you get your podcasts. Monster House presents.
1: Monster Talk is an independent podcast production of Monster House, LLC. You can show your support by subscribing to our ad-free extended episodes at patreon.com forward slash monster talk. We want to grow our monster talk audience, and the easiest way to accomplish that is for listeners to leave us five-star reviews on iTunes. Positive reviews have a huge impact and only take a moment.
0: Monster Talk.
1: Welcome to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm Blake Smith.
0: And I'm Karen Stoltzner.
1: Man, was my wife excited when I told her what this episode's about. She immediately started with the racing jokes. But no. This episode's about a different Tom Slick, the millionaire oil man and entrepreneur who funded Yeti research, including an expedition to try and find the elusive figure of legend and folklore. But that's not to say our Tom Slick was without representation in the world of fiction. In fact, he was the clear inspiration for the character of Tom Friend, played by American actor Forrest Tucker in the 1957 horror film
0: The Abominable Snowman of the Himalayas.
1: In this film, Peter Cushing plays a scientist doing research high in the mountains of this area when he gets word that a rich American adventure is coming through.
0: You ahead, man, here. You speak English? Uh, you know Dr. Rollison? Rollison. Tom Friend.
1: Oh, hi. The explorers and the scientists sit down to discuss the reason for the expedition. What evidence is there for such a thing? Photographs? Tracks? When the whole evidence of these theories is based on a few footprints in the snow. Have you ever seen these footprints, Mr. Parker? No, I have not. I have. Well with a climbing party two years ago i found a line of fresh
0: footprints like human ones only bigger and far broader you didn't see what made them i I followed them for a mile or so and then they they finished on a bare rock face it was it was just long enough to
1: get a sense of what i might be tracking
0: you're an impressionable man mr McNeely. well this is the sort of impression you don't forget
1: but wait Tom Friend says he's got very special proof indeed. Proof taken illegally from this very Lama's where they're standing. Also, there have been photographs, Mrs. Rolison. 1951 Shipton expedition took pictures of similar footprints. They were published in a the time.
0: If they could be made by a bear. But they weren't. Look, in your message, you said something about having special evidence. So this seems to be a good time to produce it. Hmm. This came into my possession a short time ago. This was stolen from here some years ago by a German explorer powerful beings, that probably means local gods. Hmm. Now watch. The ornamentation hides the joint, but it finally does unscrew, and you see? Tooth. Ah. In the Middle Ages, it was a usual thing to preserve bits of tooth and bones in the bodies of saints. That's what that is, a a reliquary, but of course you'd know more about that, Doctor. It's unbelievable. The size of it.
1: This is an excellent movie, written by the incomparable Nigel Neal, and I think it successfully combines the serious cryptozoological search for monsters with the spiritual and supernatural nature of the folklore that center on this allegedly real creature. But as much as I love that movie, the real story of the inspiration for that character is even more interesting to me, and I hope after this episode, it will be to you as well. Monster All Alright, we're going. We're doing it. It's happening. Finally. (laughs) Yes. Well, so everyone's
0: waiting with bated breath.
1: (laughs) Okay, so tonight on Monster Talk, and it's not it's it's evening now. So I mean, we were going to record this earlier today. So this is the theme.
0: it is. Yeah,
1: exactly. So I mean, I assume I think we've mentioned before. I always assume people, you know, darken the lights and you know, get you know, lean into their earbuds.
0: light a candle right yeah. whatever
1: is necessary to get into the mood for some monster talk but get
0: that ambiance. Yeah. tonight
1: we're going to be talking about tom slick and no not the cartoon character mm-hmm. um although i probably there's almost 100 i wondered be, about
0: that yeah
1: and when i tried to explain this to kathleen i was so excited we're finally covering this she wanted to know why we were covering the cartoon character mm-hmm. and then refused to like, let me actually explain. She just kept making Tom Slick jokes. I'm a fan of the cartoon, but, but that's, <laughs> yeah. that's not this. That's not this. And As near as I can tell, there's no relationship. So like, it's not like the guys who mm-hmm. made that cartoon yeah. were naming it after him as near as I can tell.
0: I don't know because he drives around in that car and he's got a dollar sign on his helmet and, it kind of makes me think a little bit about Tom Slick, the, the eccentric millionaire. So maybe it was inspired by. It
1: may be. I, I just couldn't find anything to document it. How about that? So.
0: Right. No, yeah, I couldn't either.
1: On the other hand, it is a, a, an unusual name. I, I, so who knows, who knows, but, uh, the reason it's we're talking about it, sorry, go ahead. You know, it is. And the, the, the song is catchy and, uh, it's a very silly cartoon. I believe it's from the same people that made uh, Bullwinkle and, you know, Rocky and Bullwinkle show. So.
0: Rocky and Bullwinkle. Yes, that's true. Yep.
1: Which, by the way, was an incredibly strong influence on me. I don't know, uh, like, especially like the uh, Mr. Peabody and Sherman. The There were so many puns in that cartoon that had to be uh, a big influence on me. I just didn't really put it all together to much later in life when I was revisiting it and saw, Oh, this is like pun central. Uh, so
0: yeah. <laughs> I love that well, sound I you made. Did, that's, that's, uh... <laughs> that's a, kid, but it was a long time ago. It's it's really hard to remember, but uh, I, I did enjoy it as a kid.
1: Yeah. Yeah. No, it's fun. But and, uh, I like yeah. So
0: I'm really surprised that more people aren't talking about him because I mean, he is just such a fascinating character and there's just not enough being said about him. It seems like in some ways he's been forgotten.
1: It does. In fact, I would say he was very largely forgotten. I should mention, I think Lauren Coleman wrote a book about him in 1989, something right, right around there, mm-hmm. about him being a monster right. hunter. And, and almost everything I had read about Tom Slick was, it would say, Tom Slick, Millionaire Monster Hunter or something along those lines, you know, that, you know, he had led expeditions to look for the Yeti. And I, I don't remember what I was doing. Something happened. And I, I, in in the past couple of months, I was doing some research. I guess I, let me just say this. I'm very interested in the Stanford Research Institute, which is not the university, but it's a research sort of think tank adjacent to the university that used to be affiliated. Mm -hmm. And it, was a place where they did all kinds and continue to do all kinds of interesting technical research. But, uh, and that includes Mm -hmm. like some of the pioneering things that happened in the personal computing space. I I can't overstate that. Like they have this famous thing done by a guy named Doug Engelbart called the the mother of all demos. And in, in the late Mm -hmm. sixties, he was demonstrating GUI workspaces, uh, collaborative real time document editing, cutting and pasting the mouse, all this stuff. Mm Years before a home PC would even exist. So the capabilities were all there, and it took well into the 2000s before we started to see these kind of tools being used in real life. That's astonishingly prescient. Mm -hmm. But that's also the place where we got Mm -hmm. things like uh, the Project Stargate research and Uri Geller and Psychic Spies coming out of there. And
0: that's, yeah, that's what I think of when I think of that.
1: Of SRI. Yeah. Say? Yeah. Yeah. And, and they, I mean, they've done way more legitimate uh non-paranormal work there than they have weird stuff, but, mm-hmm. but that, that figures so prominently in the sort of weird things, history of America that I, it, it has an outsized footprint of, 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 strangeness than it does for me for technical stuff. So uh I, there really needs to be a good mm-hmm. book about that place. And I don't think anybody's working on it. I, I haven't run across it, but I, I, I'd love that. But, I was doing some research on Tom Slick, and r- noticed that he had yeah, speaking crea- of footprints. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Nice, nicely done. So, <laughs> I, everybody every, every, in cryptozoology, people know him for his. I learned from research. the master. Oh. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> well done, Padawan. Right. <laughs> Star Thank Wars you
0: kindly. <laughs> I want to point out too that apparently there was going to be a fictionalized movie that was based on Tom Slick's life uh, with uh, Nicholas Cage starring as Tom Slick. And I think the movie was going to be called Monster Hunter. Yeah. So I haven't heard anything about that. Apparently it's just stalled. Yeah.
1: Yeah. It does appear to stall. But all... that
0: would be fun if that ever it came out. It could be quite
1: fun. I, I, what, when, when doing research for this show, what drove me to it was running into that he had created something called the Mind Science Institute and i didn't really see much about that but it sounded kind of like mm. similar like it just the name of it sounded similar like to the sri consciousness
0: stuff. Research, uh-huh. isn't
1: it? yeah and i've, I've uncovered yeah. a lot of stuff now so we'll be talking about that today but my hunch was he must have been mm. plugged in if he's plugged into cryptozoology he must have been plugged in some of this, uh, the i guess it's like this i think of cryptozoology as being but a single thread in the huge tapestry of weirdness that is the human experience, right?
0: (laughs) Indeed, and it does attract other strange things, too.
1: It does. And I think Slick and his money ended up funding many, many threads far beyond just cryptozoology. So uh, I I was very excited to find out that my hunch was correct. Uh, So spoilers. But uh, yeah, let's, uh, let's dig in, I guess. I've laid out in our show notes here, not show notes, but in our, our the notes that you and I used to prepare the show, uh, some some timelines mm-hmm. around his life. And uh, you've got some questions. So let's just kind of work yeah. through this. Yeah. Let's see if we can put together a story of Tom Slick. Yeah, I will say uh, quickly that most of my research was done using a book mm-hmm. called Tom Slick by Katherine, Katherine Nixon Cook and Catherine Nixon uh her maiden name i believe is uh uh she was his niece uh so the nixon family oh is tied to the slick yes. family um so in 19, yes. later on he he marries a woman named polly who's in the nixon family and um so so anyway this book is a little bit hagiographic it's it's a it feels a little bit okay. like it's you know making him out to be a saint we'll talk about that but it is probably the most yep. comprehensive, uh, also possible. I mean, you know, I think part of her life, she was working and may still be working with one of his institutes. So I, it's a good book. It's a very fun read. It's got some amazing photos in it. And the other source that I use oh. is uh searching for Sasquatch from Brian Regal, which we've talked about before. There's a whole section wow. in there on the Yeti hunt that, uh, slick funded and, It's probably the best write-up of that that I've seen. So, yeah, I just wanted to, like, give some credits for those books.
0: Fantastic. And so, yeah, Tom Slick, I had absolutely heard about him before, uh, but I didn't really know that much about him. I knew he was a kind of Indiana Jones-type figure and just digging into this a little bit more. I mean, he he was and and is a fascinating character. Can you give, give us a kind of overview about who is Tom Slick?
1: Yeah so he's Tom Slick Jr. and his father was known as the king of the wildcats although i think they used to call him something like dry hole tom or dry well tom because he was always looking for oil and not finding yeah,
0: it. Yeah that doesn't sound good.
1: No but when he <laughs> yeah. found the oil everything changed because when his his wildcat was like the first of the big american oil finds uh from an independent and it was mm-hmm. a big 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 fine and from then on he just continued to make money yep. until he just sort of dropped mm-hmm. dead when tom was only 14 tom jr
0: yeah i think he had a he had a heart attack he was only about 46 so yeah. that's pretty young
1: yeah pretty young and unexpected and but the father had you know prepared but I mean, they were very well set up financially everybody had a trust fund mm. but uh Tom Slick jr are yeah. we're just going to continue to call him Tom Slate for the rest of this but he was 14 and suddenly became the man of the family. He was sent off to a fancy boarding school in new England and didn't like it, but he got a good education and he ends up, um, in, uh, 1937 after he's finished school, he does one of those classic, let's go to Europe, right? You know, I now see the world for a few minutes. Right. right? And so he goes and every, Mm -hmm. everybody talks about him stopping in Scotland to look for like this monster. It's interesting. Mm-hmm. He he travels all over Europe. And um, I noticed that in uh, Brian Regal's book, uh, Regal mentions that he also traveled to Nazi Germany and to Soviet Russia. And then there's allegations hey. or... Er, er, I shouldn't say... There's a hint that, you know, he might have gotten a, a taste for Nazi memorabilia. I saw nothing hmm. to suggest he was in any way Nazi sympathetic or anything like that. But he also was interested <laughs> in Nazi gold after the war, so...
0: Yeah, I mean, I'd heard that he was interested uh I mean, we're going to get into this later anyway, but that he was, he, he got interested in this kind of thing, finding out about the, the discovery of the Panda. Yeah.
1: They, they, there's several things going on there. So let's, let's, yeah, you're right. Let's hold off on that just a little bit. He, in, in, uh, so he comes sure. back from Europe and then he's uh, got this girl named Betty, that he's uh, Betty Lewis. He's interested in, they have a very volatile relationship, it, it, you know, if, if he says black, she says white, you know, that kind of thing. But they liked each other and she starts to go off and she's going to marry somebody else. And that really upsets Tom. So he, you know, really lays on the, the work trying to change her mind. And then she does. And then he ends up marrying her in 1939. Um, I gather they argued a lot, but in 1943, they have their first child whose name is William. Mm-hmm. Tom is not off at war at this point because he has really bad vision are not good enough for the military standards at the time. And uh, ah, okay. as the, as the war progresses, they uh, lighten up the uh, vision requirements and he gets to be involved mm-hmm. in a lot of uh, military activity, uh, logistical type stuff and ends up spending time in Hawaii. She has okay. her first child named William, uh, who's born in 1943, but the next year she divorces Tom. Now it's unclear. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, None of the biographies say why. I mean, they argued a lot, but he was traveling a lot, and that is actually a theme that continues throughout his whole life. Uh, I'd like yes. to get back to that because nobody explicitly says he does anything naughty, but uh, I see a lot of evidence cool. he was a playboy. <laughs>
0: I I heard he was a playboy too, yeah. and he he hung around with the Hollywood crowd, so it's possible.
1: Yeah. Exactly. Never know. So she moves on, um, and, you know, and he keeps in touch with his son, William. Uh, you know, he, he can, I don't know how much he continues to support him, but he does stay in touch. And mm-hmm. in around in 1945, at the end of the war, he starts dating this woman named Polly Nixon. And right after world war two is over, uh, it's, it's an interesting time. I mean, obviously there's a lot of exuberance after the war. He's 12 years older mm-hmm. than her. And He's a divorcee, which in the 1940s and 50s was a big deal. It was, you know, kind of a social black mark. Um, but he's also really, really rich. And they appear to be really in love. Um, but he's got this idea, and this comes up over and over again in the biography, um, that he wanted to mold her to be the perfect wife. And um, mm. that it's does- a
0: little it. controlling.
1: Yeah, yeah. Which is interesting. Again, he's control- he wants to control her, but he's also gallivanting all over the world. So he marries her in 46 and then they end up having three kids together, Patty, Tom and Chuck. Um, and mm-hmm. then he's traveling everywhere, uh, going out, looking for oil, going on crazy adventures, mm-hmm. going on pleasure trips. Um, and, he sends stuff back. You know, he comes back as the you know I'm visiting now. This time to be a dad, and then he leaves again. Go ahead. And so the kids love him. You know, they, they're excited. They've got this adventurous father who's off doing things and sending back crazy gifts mm. from around the world. She, on the other hand, is tired of his crap. <laughs> so yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. Well, I want to add. Too though that didn't he really expand on the the wealth that the father had accrued? I mean, he really oh, made money himself too. He I mean, absolutely some
1: did. Yeah. People
0: get money and then they just spend it. Yes. Not naming names. Uh, he's, he's not just a tr- he's not a trust fund baby, right, right? Exactly.
1: He yeah, ends yeah, up forming yeah. a cargo air company. What maybe the first in the country, if not one, definitely one of the first, and um, mm. doing like he's constantly doing business deals constantly. And he's, mm-hmm. he is such a fan of scientific and technological research. Um, like that's mm-hmm. a value. He studied biology in college, but he ultimately uh, ends up not really going to do an advanced degree or anything like that. But when, when he establishes his farm in Texas, he names it SR, like E-S-S-A-R, but he's, it stands okay. for scientific research. So that's, that's Mm -hmm. kind of his idea there. And so right after the war, he creates the Southwest research Institute, which is an independent, uh, applied research and development organization. And the whole idea Mm -hmm. there is that it's going to be a place where you can solve technological problems and he's willing to try almost anything. So he's big into experimentation and hiring scientists Mm -hmm. and researchers. And, uh, He uses a methodology he calls the red car method. When he wants somebody to work for him, he always assumes somewhere they've got something like a shiny red car. The thing that will make them drop whatever they're doing and come work for him. It doesn't literally have to be a red car. But if if someone's really interested in some kind of research, he'll say, I want you to work on this thing, but you can definitely work on that other thing too that you really have passion about. So he basically... empowers people to do their passion projects as part of the lure to get them to come work for him.
0: Right. And a little bit of a collector as well. Collecting.
1: Oh good yeah. Mines. Yeah. I've, I've met people like that who they get an idea that they want somebody and then they're like, it's like an acquisition is, you know, very much the collector mm-hmm. kind of situation.
0: He'd hunt them. Yeah. 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 And you
1: know, it works out very well. He accrues this incredible collection of talent and um, he's, he's friends with, Scientists and philosophers and researchers. He creates the Institute of Inventive Research, which is a subset of his uh, SRI, his Southwest Research Institute. Uh, not to be confused with the Stanford Research Institute. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and this is basically an innovation incubator. It's, <laughs> she, it's very it confusing. Yeah, yeah, it does. There's a lot of there's a lot of acronyms in here. But he basically at the um, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. He, he sets up a, a barn that's a research facility. At his SR Ranch, and that is a place where they do like really Mm -hmm. people come to him with inventions and other things. You know, they're not it's things like uh, a seamless tin can, and they experiment with stuff, see if it works, and see if there's a market for it. And he is fascinated by hybridity. Early on in his life, he hears a Ripley's Believe It or Not segment about the hoat, which is uh, Uh, kind of a half hog, half goat. Um, Now. Yeah. If, great if, name. It is. It, it's it's one of the, it, it was a living thing. I mean, it really, it's a lot of these sort of, um, you know, malformed, mutated uh, livestock uh, end up being sideshows in bottles because they die. You know, we've yes. talked before about yes, pickle box. And,
0: and things like that.
1: Exactly. In this case, yes. this one lived. And so he bought it and it did apparently look like half goat, half half uh, hog. Uh, he tried to breed it with other things and none of that really worked out. And eventually right. it died. <laughs> but, but but he tried, and he and his fascination with hybrids uh, would remain for his entire life. You have to be a little cautious with how you read Catherine Nixon Cook's book, I think. She's plugged into the family, so she's getting a lot of family lore. And a lot of times when, when you yeah, hear family lore, people tell the stories in ways that sort of aggrandize the importance of what they did. Um, I'll
0: glorify Yeah, you. yeah.
1: And
0: I, I don't think,
1: I don't think, there's any malice in it, but, but for example, she talks about him being the first guy in Texas to develop the Brangus cattle breed. Uh, that's a, and it's, he it makes perfect sense. Slick would be interested in this because it's, um, it's a mixture of the Indian Brahma bull and then the Scott Angus bull. So the, the Angus is famous for being really tasty, but the, the Brahma bull is famous for being heat resistant. So there's a Brangus breeders association and, it, and on their website, they describe it as being, um, he's one of several people uh, who across ranches uh, at the same time were working on breeding this this mixture. And so they've eventually mm-hmm. settled in on a particular ratio of of Angus and Brahma to make these these cattle. But they're quite hardy uh, uh, and apparently taste good. Um, but you, you could still find them today. And I could put links to that in the show notes. But as he's traveling around the world, He's constantly looking for different plants that might thrive in America, different fish that might thrive in America. He, which you know, you coming from Australia, you're aware of what the hazards of that can be. Bringing in something that this might thrive, says guy in k- kudzu covered South Georgia, right? You know, like-
0: <laughs> Australian custom laws are amongst the the most strict in strict in the world. I mean, uh, uh, you know, I haven't. I've gotten into trouble in the past for taking cookies and biscuits and things into the country. and uh, I mean, yeah, you basically get thoroughly searched and um, have to dump anything that you've brought into the country in terms of food and just anything that they deem to be suspicious. They're very cautious. Yeah, there's a clear pattern there that he was interested in, in hybrids. And I think it's interesting that he was so fascinated with science and yet at the same time he had this deep interest in cryptozoology. Which makes me think, just how paranormal or how uh, pseudoscientific was cryptozoology seen in those days? I mean, we're going back to the 1950s or to the 1930s, 40s, and 50s. Was this seen as science then?
1: Yeah, it's a good question. I th- wasn't. I think coelacanth was discovered uh, around 38, um, and so that was a big thing. And like you say, the panda had been discovered. And, and this is just before Bernard Hivelmont, uh releases his book On the Track of Unknown Animals. So let's okay. see. So that would have been 58. And I think that first came out in French because he's from Belgium. But uh, apparently Slick was familiar with the book. I don't know if he was able to read French or not. But uh, mm-hmm. he, he, he talked about having been familiar with the book even before the English translation came out. So... Yeah, he he was definitely plugged into all this stuff. And he Mm -hmm. seemed like the kind of guy who was plugged into a lot of strangeness. And uh, that seems to have escalated. It seems to have escalated after he gets divorced from Polly. So around 56, Mm -hmm. he ends up going on this trip to British Guiana. And which is interesting for me, I think, because... He he was ostensibly going because he'd read a really strange book about that area, which claimed that there was a uh, sort of a diamond pipeline. But it also had lots and lots of entries about the magical healing powers of the plants and the capabilities, magical capabilities of the shamans of the region. And so this you know mm-hmm. traditional medicine and and sort of you know native magic and all that sort of stuff so he 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 puts together an expedition to go look for this diamond thing uh, this this sort of diamond tunnel corridor producing uh area and to test out uh are the shamans real and also does the medicine work like is there actually is there a pharmaceutical opportunity here that he can exploit and so they fly down and they, yeah. go, they go on all these- a Little exped-
0: bit serpent in the rainbow.
1: <laughs> Literally, uh, his, his niece in the book, she quotes Wade Davis and talks about the pharmaceutical power oh, and
0: stuff. Oh, wow. So, yeah.
1: Yep. And, uh, quite, quite, quite. And he finds stuff that seems to work. Like he finds anti-dysentery medicine, for example. But he also tries out, according to the notes in the book, it, they don't go into explicit detail about what he tries but while the shaman claimed to have like go to other worlds and you know the sort of things it sounds very much like the kind of things you can experience with ayahuasca where you you know they talk about you traveling to other dimensions and having your ego deconstructed and reconstructed and all that sort of thing being able to fly <laughs> he doesn't get any of that he ne- he says he never flies any further than his hammock when he tries the medicines but <laughs> there's also a funny story about him he's a very uh, adventurous and wants to try different cuisine and uh, at one point, uh, his, the, I guess the people he's traveling, they get tired of like him doing this. And so they, uh, agree to try some of the local cuisine, which is apparently a dish made from octopus and it makes everybody sick. And after that, he agrees to eat the regular food that he's familiar with. So, uh, I thought that was kind of funny.
0: Uh, <laughs> uh well, did you hear about the accident that he had, uh, at the end of that trip? He was on, yeah. On so a, a, so they're, plane they're, they're, they're on a plane trip. And the plane crash.
1: Right, right. As they're getting ready to come back, he's coming back, but he's leaving behind two of his partners. And the plane's new. The plane was totally serviced. And as it's trying to leave the uh, flight path, it crashes into some of the giant ant hills at the end of the runway. And they, you know, they they thought maybe it had been sabotaged because it would have been very unusual for it to malfunction, being you know everything checked out, new, et cetera. Hmm. But they never ran it to ground as, like, you know, being anything. They get the plane fixed, get him back to America. He leaves behind two colleagues who continue the research. They do another year of research. And as they're winding up, they've got all their stuff together. They decide to go on a canoe trip down the river uh, as a sort of adventure. Compared to all the things they've done before, they think this will be no big deal. But there'd been a lot of flooding. And the canoe ends up being, they're oh. they're not able to like outrow the river's current and it takes them over a waterfall. And not only did they die, but they also lose the manuscript of all the work they had done. So it's a big blow, big blow. Yeah.
0: I don't know where this fits into the story, but what I'd read about was that when he was involved in that accident, he was stranded in the jungle for two weeks and he was living with a tribe and subsisting on parrot meat so i don't know if that's correct but
1: (laughs) he was at an airstrip it crashed at the end of the airstrip i don't i don't think so yeah that's that's not at least yeah
0: that's not that's not exactly you know the jungle
1: right exactly (laughs) that doesn't really match up with what uh miss nixon i keep wanting to call her miss nixon it's nixon cook that's so
0: miss cook miss cook That's 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 a good story though Right.
1: it is a very good story
0: that's our whole
1: show so join us every wednesday on all major podcast platforms and find us on instagram tiktok and twitter at chinwag pod and Waggon. to be honest to be clear there are not a ton of conflicting stories but each one of his adventures seems to have a variety of tales that come out of it and some of them don't Mm seem i mean they, they some of them may have been embellished and some of them might be misremembered because he's done a lot like he he went on a lot of trips and had a lot of adventures but out of these things you know he sends oh, yeah. back samples like the whole time he's sending back things to have them check to see if they're any good or not you know do they work mm-hmm. now what's interesting is in 19 we have to go back in time just a little bit and i, I want to kind of get some context here in 1949 Mao Zedong uh, leads the communists take over of China, and so that is a big change in China, and it bothers a lot of people because yeah. uh, there's you know people had investments and in other things that get national. There's you know people in the West, even if oh, you you wouldn't think of it, they they did have a lot of economic and political reasons for caring that China suddenly became a giant communist nation. It's a big deal.
0: Oh yeah, and yeah. the fear of the domino. Exactly, effect all exactly. That stuff
1: so what and i find this very uh familiar territory but the whole region of tibet decides to start seeking international recognition uh, as a independent nation so it's reaching out to other nations and trying to establish diplomatic ties and treaties and that sort of thing and china in 1949 between 1949 and 1951 rolls in and takes over Tibet. They call it the peaceful liberation of Tibet and consider that Tibet's always been part of China. I think most of the West Mm -hmm. considers it to be the annexation of China. It has incredibly familiar notes to what's going on in Ukraine with Russia right now.
0: Right. Yeah, true.
1: So Tibet suddenly becomes a very complicated place. Mm -hmm. Um, And Tibet and... Nepal, and Pakistan, and India, and China, all share borders with the Himalayas, uh, aka the Himalayas. But I I think it's Himalayas. I I try to say it that way now. This is the region where the Yeti is supposed to live. Now, the Yeti had been in Western newspapers since 1920, when some mountain expeditions, uh, looking at Everest and other places around there, had first run into stories of the Yeti. And famously, they sent back um, reports that got mangled uh, translation-wise, and Yeti became the abominable snowman, which made good headlines. Uh,
0: uh, I've read that uh, reports go back to the, the 1890s, uh, when explorers were were going there into Nepal.
1: They even go back to the 1830s, I believe, is the first English uh, mention of it. but. The stories are, you know, more than... A th- they're centuries old, at least. And I think they're more than a thousand years old. But the, the, the stories of the Yeti are centuries old. Oh, and, and so I'm talking
0: about the the idea of it coming back to Western and Zen right, right, right. In the, the particular.
1: Earliest I saw was, I think, 1830s. Uh, but, like, you're right. it, it Around that time... But the, when it hit that... It, it's the funny thing of how, like, you can tell a story and tell a story, and then some magical wording suddenly catches people's imagination... And abominable snowman mm-hmm. caught on in a way that Yeti or Migo or any of those other other terms never did. Uh, it just really, really got. Right. It blew up in the papers. We we talked about that before. Like even H.P. Lovecraft read about the Yeti and the Migo and and, and added that to his fiction because it was like, no, no, those are real. They're just you know, we made a different monster out of them. But
0: yeah, well, from what I've read. Uh, just regarding the name Abominable Snowman, I've read that there was a mistranslation of Mito or, or uh, there are several different, I think, pronunciations of the term for man bear, but uh, that it was interpreted as or construed as meaning filthy. And so that's how they came up with the term Abominable Snowman. And nowadays, of course, people will talk about sightings. The Sasquatch Bigfoot, the Yeti as being stinky and that maybe this is kind of the name that's colouring the sighting.
1: We talked about that recently with Eric Mortenson in our episode about yeti mm-hmm. stories you've never heard before. That, that there's so many right. names for the creature. I'm still bumping in the names I haven't heard before. That's absolutely real. But oh, it,
0: absolutely. 1920 yep. different dialectal terms.
1: Exactly, exactly. And so, and they mean different things in different parts of the world. Like that, it's all sounds like roughly the same creature, but there's actually. Probably mm-hmm. a couple of different animals at the root of this, and then a lot of folklore, a lot of folklore that's yeah. supernatural oh, and magical and has nothing to do with mm-hmm. real animals. So, and we talked mm-hmm. in that episode a little bit about the sort of colonial nature of cryptozoology coming in and sort of, we're going to give you the scientific explanation for all your magic stories, you know, that sort of thing. And it's like mm-hmm. that, you know, there, so there's a lot of that going on. Uh, the, the, the mighty Westerners with their mighty science coming in to tell people what's yeah. really up. 1920 was C.K. Howard Berry Expedition. That's where we got the garbled translation. A newspaperman named Henry Newman in the Calcutta Statesman mistranslated the words to be abominable snowman. That's the original place of that. And um, But in 1951. It's a great name, though. Oh, it is. No, no. And it's fun. I mean, I've been looking at the British newspaper. In fact, I should put some of those in the show notes, some of those reports, because it's really interesting yeah. to see the old newspapers and how they were describing these things. Sure. And you may think abominable snowman, it's a hairy monster. But then some of the stories coming out of those expeditions were they saw barely dressed humans with primitive, like bow and arrow weapons walking around in the snow, which again,
0: like Neanderthals, yeah.
1: Yeah. Ex- yes, exactly. Like, mm-hmm. so maybe a primitive human, but doesn't sound like a hairy monster. So it's like ghosts. Mm-hmm it's like these things can be lots of different things and you got to figure out what people mean when they say certain words.
0: Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. We need to deal with different languages and mm-hmm. different cultures.
1: And it's a honking big region. I mean, like I, as I just named off the countries that touch the Himalayas or the Mayas, it's it's, mm-hmm. um, it's a lot of different places with different in the, also different. Yeah. Different in the, in the languages and the cultures and the religions. And mm-hmm. Oh goodness gracious. Okay. It's a lot, but so 51 rolls in and Eric Shipton's expedition to uh, try to go into the sort of region towards Everest, uh, he's trying to get to the 29,000-foot mm-hmm. peak of Everest. They see, I think it's in the Gauri-Sankar region, a bunch of tracks, um, and they take photos of them. There's this big, long string of footprints, and they're bigger than the snowshoe prints. There's a famous photo of one of them yeah, next to an f- axe. Yeah, that's famous
0: photo. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: And so it became that uh, did the 1952 equivalent of going viral. Um, Especially there was a popular science article in 1952 (laughs) that uh, showed the photos and talked about this. And I think that was sort of what uh, that the Shipton trip in particular was probably what got the Yeti into Tom Slick's mind.
0: Right.
1: But there was a lot of interest in sending a scientific research team to the region to find out what was going on. Mm-hmm. But, but, and I think this is important. There was also a lot mm-hmm. of political interest in finding out what the heck was going on with China and Tibet. And basically what's the geopolitical situation there? Because, you know, if by this point, I see. Uh, you know, Britain had left India. And so there's all these regions where there's, you know, superpowers are basically jockeying for position. Uh, countries mm-hmm. are trying to maintain their independence. Uh, India and yep. Pakistan had been split up by the Brits. And I mean, just there's a mm-hmm. lot going on. So for the, um, it's not the CIA yet, it's the OSS, I think, uh, or maybe it becomes the CIA right around that time. This is all right around that same period. There's a there's a lot of interest mm-hmm. in people sending spies to find out what's going on. So um, it's too much of a story to explain here uh, in any kind of like, like if you want to really see a good summary, check out Brian Riegel's book, because he does a beautiful job of not just breaking down the story of who might've been a spy, who was definitely a spy and who we don't, you know, we don't know. Um, He also gives you background on the different characters. There's a a guy named Dylan Ripley, definitely a CIA spy, but also an ornithologist. There's a Russian guy named Boris Lasanovich who was in the region. He's called Boris of Katmandu. And he's kind of like the fixer in the Kathmandu region. So if you want to go through and do a, any kind of expedition, you need to stop and talk to him to get equipped properly. There's a anthropologist, mm-hmm. Carlton Kuhn, who's um, very famous, but also had some super controversial racist ideas that the fascists and Nazis liked.
0: With well, you talking about uh, Boris, makes me think of Rocky and Bullwinkle. Again,
1: exactly. Yeah, yeah. Boris, <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> so... <laughs> I, I, Yeah, exactly. Uh, Life magazine uh, was run by a guy, like Time Life, that whole sort of conglomerate was run by a guy named Henry Luce, spelled L-U-C-E. And he was fiercely anti-communist and he loved Chiang Kai-shek, uh, who had been the leader of China. So he was really annoyed at everything that had gone on. And he was also really interested in the Yeti story. So he was trying to put together mm. an expedition. And so Tom Slick, basically gets into competition with Henry Luce over who's going to put the expedition together to go find out the real story of this Yeti. And um, this is the crazy part. Meanwhile, 1956, while all this is going on, they're like trying to put this together, Peter Byrne finds out about this because he's sitting at a campfire uh, with Tenzing Norgay, who later goes with uh, Hillary, to the top of Everest. He's like, he's later one of the two. That makes-
0: Edmund, Edmund Hillary.
1: That's yeah. right. And so mm-hmm. Byrne hears directly from Tenzing Norgate that there's this guy named Tom Slick, who's a millionaire who wants to find the Yeti. And so Peter Byrne's like, whoa, mm-hmm. wow. So Peter is uh, a, like a 24-year-old Irish guy who's working on an Indian tea plantation. uh Or I shouldn't say that. Oh, excuse me, a Darjeeling. That's Darjeeling, India, though, right? I think that's India.
0: It is yeah, a town in India's West Bengal state in yeah. the Himalayan foothills.
1: Exactly. So, Byrne has been working on a Darjeeling tea plantation, but that's his primary job. But his secondary job to make extra money, he uses his tracking and hunting skills and leads people on tiger expeditions. And so, he's built wow. up a reputation as a guide and a hunter. Mm-hmm. And he's clearly an adventurer. He's young and, you know, interested in this stuff. He's hanging out with exactly the right people to find out about this Slick expedition. He sends off a letter to mm-hmm. Slick. And Slick, uh, lucky for him, uh, Slick has a girlfriend in India named Kathy McLean. Now, he, Slick met her not in India. But then, like, he he's kind of, like, entranced with her. And then she says, yeah, well, I got to go. I'm moving to India. And then so she continues to send him letters, uh, McLean sent slick letters back from all her travels. So when burn uh, writes to slick saying, Hey, I'm interested in hooking up and doing this slick uses McLean as an agent to talk to burn and sort of make the arrangements. Um, I think Kuhn was also in on that meeting. So they get together and have a, a, um, a powwow or whatever you want to call it. They get together and they hammer out the details And that's how the Tom Slick expedition initially gets started. Like that's going to be uh, the Tom Slick expedition.
0: Wow. That's quite a story.
1: It is. It's a really interesting story because Slick basically scoops Life Magazine out of the way. And he ends up getting a little bit of additional funding uh, from another oil guy. And so I think it's Slick Johnson, if I remember correctly. And that's how the funding happens. But Slick goes himself and... The the weird thing is he's been working with all these scientists uh, and spies to prep for this deal. Mm-hmm. But as he's getting ready to like make the final like put the package together, if you will, he suddenly mm-hmm. kicks them all to the curb and just has the adventurers go. They don't take the scientists with them. They have a network of people to send samples to, but it's like the He Man Monster Hunters Club going to look for the monster, and they're leaving the scientists on the curb. Right. We- which Regal points right. out means they, well, it's still a valid way to do the business, but it's it's not good because now they don't have anyone on the team who can discern what's good scientific evidence and what's garbage.
0: Exactly, it's not not proper field work at all. Exactly.
1: So that kind of, it kind of breaks <laughs> yeah. down from being a interesting anthropological slash biological hunting trip with real scientists, you know, into a a bunch of adventurers who, you know, have bags yeah. and jars to put stuff in. So, um
0: And that, some bias as well.
1: Yes. Yes, exactly. Now, I'll say this, Slick seemed open to almost anything, but he did seem to also have some critical thinking skills. Like he he wasn't duped by everyone who came along, but but he did mm-hmm. uh he was way more open-minded than your average scientist, I would say
0: what I think is interesting is, wasn't it around this time that the uh, Nepalese government forbade foreigners from killing a Yeti?
1: I I believe Along the lines of what (laughs) happened
0: to the the first panda. Yeah.
1: (laughs) I believe they were like four days, either four days into or four days before they started their expedition. Uh, I think it was four days into it when the Nepalese government passed a law saying you can't hunt or capture a Yeti. Yeah. So Mm -hmm. because Slick wanted to capture it live. And so he had a series of tranquilizer dart guns put together. They called them the power guns. And they had uh, a combination mm-hmm. of, of tranquilizers and then stimulants to wake up the Yeti. <laughs> they, they were prepared. They really were prepared. And they, in, in fact, when they were like trying to put the deal together and they had to talk to Boris the Fixer, uh, Boris of Kathmandu. Um, they, uh, they had to give up one of their tranquilizer guns to him. And then he, he loved having it, but he was scared of it too. Cause it was this weird newfangled contraption. Um,
0: oh yeah. I'd be scared of it too. <laughs> and you know, this is,
1: it's rural Nepal. Things aren't great. They're they're At one point they get on this like colorful rickety bus. And as they're riding along, the bus's brakes give out and the bus starts to go out of control. And it's rolling down a hill and everybody's jumping out. Slick jumps out too. The bus crashes into a house. Fortunately, nobody's killed, but not everybody got off the bus, so a lot of people were injured. And um, there's two different sort of versions. I'm inclined to trust um, Slick's Slick's niece. Uh, She said that his Mm -hmm. injuries were primarily on his shins. Uh, Some people said it was his knees, but it it troubled him the rest of his life. But Slick's um, mother got wind of this, and apparently she was a very strong force within the family and she demanded that he never go on an expedition like this again pay for the adventure but don't be on the adventure
0: yeah well this is after he just crashed in the jungle too so yeah Yeah. i mean i heard she was a matriarch too but yeah he did what what mommy wanted him to do
1: exactly (laughs) exactly paid
0: for everything right
1: yeah i mean i mean i mean he had his own money but i mean you know she had that power i Mm. mean we all have i mean to some extent, if if you have a family, well, she
0: lost her her ex- husband, his yes, father, exactly.
1: And yeah, exactly. She was worried
0: I'm, about losing him too. Yeah,
1: and I I I think he's the kind of guy who would have eventually gotten killed doing this kind of stuff if if he had to and it. And
0: did well, yeah. In a way, yeah.
1: We'll get to that. Yeah. <laughs> he on this trip, yeah, he also yeah, yeah. he gets to meet the Dalai Lama. Now that's not the same Dalai Lama as we have today, unless you yeah. believe in reincarnation, which it totally is. Okay. There are... <laughs> I yeah, yeah, <laughs> but, good points. But um, <laughs> they meet the Dalai Lama, and um, he has already been aware of. And you can tell from like when we talked about his uh, trip to British Guiana, he was very interested in mm-hmm. mind powers and psychic powers and magic powers and all those sort of things. So meeting people who nice. did transcendental meditation, um, his girlfriend Kathy McLean uh, clearly was interested in in the sort of tricks of fakirs, I should say. The performances of Fakirs, I mean, just because all the ones I've looked mm-hmm. at so far yeah. have been phony doesn't mean they all are. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> so they were, they were looking yeah, at well. the, it. So um, he gets the idea to start his Mind Science Foundation because of this trip.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And uh, that same year, uh, let, let, me, let me sort of finish up. They don't find the Yeti, and he ends up coming back to the United States. But he continues to fund additional research with Peter Byrne and Peter Byrne's brother. And so that goes on. But meanwhile, he comes back to the U.S. and establishes the Mind Science Foundation. Now, this is where I get very excited because we're going to step away from cryptozoology for just a minute and talk about what happens with Slick back in the States. Because he's interested in transcendental meditation, uh, psychic powers, all these sort of paranormal topics. Well
0: before the Beatles.
1: Well before the Beatles. Yes, exactly. Yes, it reminds me very much of. Uh, in fact, let me check the years on this.
0: Because um, with the Beatles, I'm not sure. I think it was. I think it was about sixty, sixty seven, sixty eight that they started.
1: Yeah, it was in the sixties. Exactly. C
0: well, M.
1: Yeah, but check this out. Someone else was in India at the same time looking for magic. And trying to find out about paranormal powers and trying to find the real magic. And that guy's name okay, uh, was John mm-hmm. Keel, the same guy who gave us the Mothman prophecies, ultra-terrestrials and all that stuff. So That
0: early? Wow. Yes. Okay.
1: So something was happening here at this time. This is um, John Keel and Tom Slick in the same area at the same time looking into these magical claims. Keel goes on to really Mm -hmm. sort of found the ultra terrestrial school of the paranormal and slick goes on to create the mind science foundation. And he starts working with people looking for people who have psi powers. And that includes famous, uh, psychic Peter Herkos. Um, and Mm -hmm. he meets, um, at this, he watches TV and he sees a, a performance on TV of a guy doing levitations and that guy's name is Jim Crabe. And he reaches out to okay. Crabe. He's like, you know, I don't know you. You don't know me. But I'm interested in knowing more. If your powers are real, I'd like to know more about them. And if they're not real, I'd like to know that, you know, you're doing magic or you know stage magic or whatever. And that guy, mm-hmm. Jim Crabe, turns out he, he's also very honest. He tells him, I'm a magician. This is all just performance. And that's when Slick gets the idea okay. of doing these series of talks at this um, place that he set up with his sister called... The Argyle Club. Now, the Argyle Club is kind of like a country club, but it also has like fancy, uh, very complicated dinner parties with all kinds of intellectuals and, you know, people from different areas of expertise. At this point, I'm basically mm-hmm. in love with Tom Slick because that has been a fantasy of mine for decades to be able to fund some kind of place where people with different areas of expertise can meet up and, and discuss things over dinner. Oh, my God, I would love yeah. that. So, uh,
0: I didn't know anything about this. This, this is cool.
1: Yeah. And so he decides if he's going to have these dinners and have psychics there, he should also have magicians so that he can sort of have a control slash can they reproduce the same effect? And that's like, he called it part of his his sense of fair play, but it's very Uh reminiscent of the stuff Randy was doing. James Randy was doing later.
0: Very much so. Yeah. I wonder if Randy was familiar with also mean, He probably was.
1: Probably was. Now I know a, Around this same time, Randy was interested in uh, archaeology and uh, I don't know, that might have been the early 60s, but I know Randy went on like some crazy expeditions of his own, like grave robbing uh, <laughs> with Jim Mosley in South America. And it, was, it was an interesting time. By, by 1958, uh, Slick has also uh, co-written a book called A Permanent Peace, which he considers to be a road map to how we can have world peace and not end up in nuclear war. So he's a little bit ahead of the peace movement as well, which I think is kind of wild.
0: Yes. Yeah. Now, yeah he was doing a lot of different things.
1: His mind science uh, facility ends up hiring hiring, uh, or engaging the services of Andrea Pujaric, um, who was a researcher who was also into all kinds of psychic powers, including a guy named Uri Geller. Now, uh, he hires a, a Indian doctor named K.T. Jahagadar, uh, who is going to study mental healing. And he hires mm. a fellow Texan named C.V. Woody Wood Jr. to become a lifetime trustee of the Mind Science Foundation. And Woody is the guy who convinced Uri Geller to come to the United States to be studied in 72. So this is all happening.
0: Wow, all oh, this crossover.
1: There's a ton of crossover. And 58 is also the year that Jerry Crew in California sees Bigfoot tracks around his logging operation. It's also the year that Bernard Heuvelmonds releases On the Track of Unknown Animals. This is all ground zero for modern cryptozoology right here.
0: Yeah. Oh, it's all happening. Yeah. And at a time, too, where I think it was more plausible...
1: (laughs) Oh, yeah, 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 for sure. I mean, the research, I again, you won't hear any criticism from me that the people were interested, curious, in experimenting and researching. And they never will because mm-hmm. if we sat in our chairs and said that's not real, that doesn't actually test anything. So mm-hmm. now, once you've established it's not real, maybe it's kind of silly to keep at it, but th- th- you know, that's it's good to do the research. So
0: indeed, but you're getting off to the really fun stuff now.
1: Yeah, I'm excited. So, all the time this is happening, he's setting up this Mind Science Foundation. He's sort of working on, you know, the proto-peace movement. Uh, Cryptozoology is being born. Peter Byrne and his brother are still in India looking for the Yeti. And uh, Slick is paying them a little. But they've scaled down from this giant expedition to just a couple of guys living off the land, trying to live under the radar so that they don't... uh, scare off the yeti they they believe basically at certain times of the year the the People weather's good well they don't want to get imported either and they're sleeping in caves and all kinds of things but um <laughs> this is also when peter Byrne dedicated steals the finger of the pangbosh hand so we've talked about this before there are multiple relics uh of the yeti in various um Sort of Tibetan monasteries around the mm-hmm. region in Nepal and in india uh which have these yeah. these relics and sometimes they're the skull cap, sometimes they're the hand, whatever they are, mm-hmm. the most interesting one I think was the this hand, this mummified hand in this this uh mm-hmm. in Pangoshe. and oh
0: yeah they're they're important to these monasteries because they're believed to protect. The monastery and protect the the town nearby, and, and that if someone steals it, if it's destroyed or lost in some way, that that's going to bring bad luck and misfortune. On and, al- and also I mean, the, the area,
1: and I think in in this one, the uh, the story is that um you know the Yeti helped build the Lamas area, I believe is the story. So, or if it's not this one, it's one of them. Oh. There's some very interesting folklore around that, and that's. That reminds me very much of Solomon hiring the djinn or may, or demons, depending on which version you listen to, to, to build the temple, that sort of thing. Yeah, I said hiring, yeah. controlling with a ring. Same difference, but <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but um, but Burn they had offered to buy the hand, and they weren't interested. You know, it's it's a holy relic, or at least uh, I don't know if holy, but sacred in some way. Well, I, you know, you know. Um,
0: yeah, I keep reading different things that that Burn yeah. asked difficult habit. And then he offered money Mm -hmm. and yeah, there's several different stories floating around about that.
1: The one, the one that's most plausible to me is there was like a, there was a story that there was sort of a bribe involving liquor and money and he was allowed to be left alone. Oh, the scotch. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. The, the, the monk was uh, like scotch.
1: Yeah. And so he, (laughs) he doesn't just, he doesn't steal the hand, but he's been given a mummified finger to replace one. So basically he steals a finger and wires in a replacement finger. And
0: yeah. Wasn't would, that Hill, some an anthropologist, the name, name of Hill.
1: That's uh William Charles Osmond okay, Hill. Yeah. And, uh,
0: he supplied the finger bone.
1: Exactly. He gave him the finger <laughs> and then, and then yeah, Byrne yeah, yeah. gave Literally. the monks <laughs> the finger.
0: <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, so, yeah, yeah.
1: But so Byrne steals the finger and then famously, uh, needs some help getting it out of the region. So he gives it to Jimmy Stewart, whose wife hides it in her underwear bag and the uh, prudish uh, inspectors don't look in her underwear and she's able to sneak it out. And of course, the irony is the hand itself was a mummified human hand. So Byrne brings a finger of a mummified human hand to replace a finger so they can evaluate what the original thing is. And it too is a hand. And then even Mm -hmm. weirder... When Brian Sykes was doing his Yeti research, um, they found the finger. It had been like in storage in a museum or a research facility. And then they did a DNA test and
0: a part of it or something.
1: Right. And a part of the DNA that they found was Peter Byrne's DNA on the finger, which is funny to me. Uh, so, yeah, that's a, a wild story. Wow, that's, yeah.
0: that's incredible. Yeah.
1: It really is. It's, yeah,
0: it's such an amazing story. I mean, just the fact that it involves Jimmy Stewart and.
1: Oh, yeah. And <laughs> it's
0: a really crazy story.
1: And, and keep in mind that at the same time this is happening, this is 59 is also the year that Tibet uh organizes some uprisings trying to push China back out and China crushes oh, it. Oh yeah,
0: there's a in, lot going on there.
1: In the Dalai Lama's hmm. exile, that's when all that falls a- apart over there. Um 1960 mm, yeah. to 1961 uh Slicks continuing to grow his research facilities into the Mind Science Foundation and at the same time, Edmund Hillary and Marlon Perkins of TV's Wild Kingdom go on an expedition to look at the Yeti. And Marlon at this time, I think, was the head of a zoo, um, maybe in Chicago. I can't recall, but he was a big American zoo. Okay. Edmund Hillary and Marlon Perkins go on this expedition and they find none of the stuff is real regarding the Yeti. But um, mm-hmm. it, it does give them the opportunity to do a tremendous amount of scientific research about Climatization at altitude and all kinds of other things. Some really cool stuff comes out of it, but largely Mm. the public goes, Oh, the Yeti's just folklore. And, you know, plus, but
0: that's a real turning point.
1: It really is. And, uh, no, so, Oh, the Yeti's folklore and burn gets a letter. He burns in a cave with his brother trying to not freeze to death. When a runner shows up with a letter from slick saying, you need to come back, Uh, we're going to go look for the Bigfoot, right?
0: (laughs) Yeah, he focuses on America instead. Right,
1: which is, you know, less expensive, certainly politically safer, um, and Mm -hmm. ultimately, you know, leads to Peter Byrne becoming one of the so-called four horsemen of Bigfootery. So Byrne is still alive as we're recording this. Uh, He's quite old. To my knowledge, Mm -hmm. has never found Bigfoot. Yeah, fascinating to
0: speak with.
1: (laughs) It would be. He seems like an interesting (laughs) character. 1961, Ivan Sanderson releases his book, Abominable Snowman Legend Come to Life. And in 1962, Slick has lots of plans, but he goes to Canada on a hunting trip. And he is flying over Montana when apparently Mm -hmm. his airplane, the plane basically disintegrates and it's scattered over, My. Uh, you know, a mile of territory, and um, the pilot and Slick well, are both killed.
0: I find that kind of interesting, but there are conspiracy theories associated with the crash that there were people out to get him, that someone caused the accident. I, Even I, theories a la Elvis that he's still around.
1: <laughs> he, he, you know what's funny? When I look at pictures <laughs> of him, I, I, I couldn't imagine Nicolas Cage playing him, but I could totally... Im- he looked a lot like... Uh, Philip K. Dick, uh, or maybe you know when he was younger, he looked like a Michael Biehn, uh, the the guy who was in uh, Terminator and The Abyss. So you know,
0: well, if if listeners are curious, you can go onto YouTube and you can look look up Tom Slick, and there are a lot of home videos of the family. So they had a camera and they were filming all different kinds of things. Most of it's kind of hunting and that sort of stuff, but it's interesting just to see footage of him and his family yeah. and and friends. Uh, but it's just, there's a lot of, of about him out there still.
1: Absolutely. So I just wanted to like talk about his legacy for just a second. In, a, in addition yeah. to funding um, these institutes, which by the way are, are largely still in existence, um, the Southwest Research Institute is still there doing research and development. The Institute of Inventive Research closed. That was sort of like a practical. That was the one we called an incubator. The Mind Science Institute is still out there. And, you know, yes, they were looking into psychic stuff, and they may still be, but if you go look at their site today, they're funding research for people like V.S. Ramachandran, you know, the sort of, like, well-known brain scientists, and at least that's the publicly facing okay. part of it. I don't know if they're still into the uh, more mm. paranormal sci stuff or not. I'd be interested in finding out, and maybe I'll reach out yeah. to them. Yeah.
0: But I'm thinking about all the other things that he did, too. I mean, didn't didn't he fund expeditions to search the Orang Pendek?
1: Oh, I didn't see At that. One point, yeah, I yeah, didn't see that in, in any of the stuff I read. So it's possible. Um,
0: yeah, that's that's what I've heard. So yeah, he didn't didn't go there, but that he was funding uh, some work in Sumatra.
1: Yeah, I mean, he had a danger. lot of money and was willing to you know try out things. I mean, he was just a very very open minded. I'll tell you this: when I went into this yeah. Tom Slick Monster Hunter, my first thought was what is he like a cryptozoological Elon Musk, you know, like just full of wacky ideas. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. But I, sure. but I think maybe closer to say he's more like a, um, a cryptozoological Robert Bigelow, but like Bigelow seems really interested in UFOs and stuff. Yeah. With his
0: funding. Right.
1: But I think maybe one of the differences Bigelow seems to be very much like he has an agenda around wanting this stuff to be true. Therefore let's prove it. And I think Slick was more it seemed mm-hmm. to be more, is this stuff true? Let's go find out. And that, that that's that's open minded. That's a big yeah. difference. Like it's a big difference. He wasn't trying yeah. to prove he was trying to find out. I mean, like he didn't think it was real, therefore let's show him. It was more like, maybe it's real, let's go see. Mm-hmm. Or that, that's the vibe I got.
0: True. Yeah. True explorer and researcher and investigator.
1: Exactly. And he filmed at the, the the Texas Biomedical Research Institute. I think, and that's, uh, I think he started at 41. It became this new name in 52, but it has, I think the largest collection of living baboons in the world, like maybe more than even wild troops of so but it's definitely the largest in captivity and they're doing all kinds of strange. It's the largest privately owned bioagent research facility. Uh, they've got like the biggest cluster of mm-hmm. statistical gene research computing, so, so I mean, the footprint—it's still val—he's still got these institutes going. They're still out there doing research, and um, they all hold him in high esteem, you know, as as the founder and original funder. So, so who knows what may still come from Tom Slick, you know?
0: Sounds <laughs> like he was a pretty charismatic and enigmatic guy. But I do want to add too, just in kind of looking through our notes and to see—is there anything else that we have neglected to talk about? I just wanted to touch upon this—that he. Uh, did expeditions in Willow Creek? I think that I mean, and that predates the Patterson Gimlin uh, video by maybe seven, eight, nine years. And so it's
1: four or five years. Yeah, 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 yes, yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. Maybe, maybe closer to that. But that that really had, was probably a big influence on on what those what happened there, what those guys did.
1: For sure. I mean, I th- I think if you listen to all the Monster Truck episodes we've done covering that area uh, of of bigfoot research it's it's a fascinating timeline of people and characters and activities and all of it's been molded into a sort of short mythology of american bigfootery uh and you know Mm -hmm. the skeptical view would be that this all comes out of the 1950s and of course cryptozoologies have now sort of backfit lots of uh giant hairy man stories into being part of Bigfoot lore. Um and so there's definitely multiple ways to look at it. But Tom Slick's uh, again footprint. Not I haven't done many puns in this one and I'm, that's I'm, I'm just I'm very fascinated by this topic so I'm kind of focused on getting the times and stuff right. But Sure. It's um I mean he, his his impact on this is enormous but not just that. I mean his his impact's much bigger in American weirdness, he's got, like say a a big old chunk of the tapestry has got slick's name on it. Right. And,
0: um, indeed. Yeah.
1: This is not meant as an insult at all, but I would say that one of the things that I thought was amusing was in her book, cook talks about, um, I, first of all, I didn't realize that Neiman Marcus was a Texas company. I always thought of it being up in the North somewhere, but apparently Neiman Marcus was a Texas department store first. And,
0: Slick, I, I had heard
1: that, yeah. Yeah, Slick was friends and, and a big customer for them, and would use them to send special gifts to people in his life, right? Whether those were family members or the many, many, many women that he gave special gifts to, um, he he seemed to Stay have uh, he seemed to have a woman in every port, as they say. So mm, when I yeah. hear about these divorces. There's no talk in any of the, the the book about, well, Tom had been seeing some other people and got caught. That's never mentioned. But when you look at how much of a player he was after the divorces, I have to wonder if maybe there wasn't a little...
0: Chances are.
1: Yeah, maybe this is being written in such a way it doesn't make him sound like a jerk.
0: Those times and that kind of money, yeah, yeah I, I yeah. think
1: so. It, right. I mean, it was the age of madmen. <laughs> And he was yeah, one, yeah. one of the the richer people in the world, you know. Yeah, uh, it, it definitely
0: mummy's boy. So he was a little screwed up.
1: Yeah. Also, possibly true. Yeah. He had a lot going on there. He had a lot going on. But a
0: fascinating well, we, character. We should add to just just mentioning his uh, mother. I think it's an interesting coincidence that Tom died at the same age as his father. They it both is. died at the age of forty-six.
1: It is interesting. I and, and sad. Spooky. I mean. I mean, I'm I'm 52 yeah. now. And 46 young. seems young, right? <laughs> uh. when, you're, when you're 20, 46 sounds old. Well, at least you made it to 46. Now, like, now I'm like 52. Yeah, yeah. Like, that poor bastard. But <laughs> oh,
0: yeah. Yeah, yeah. Just a youngin'.
1: Exactly. But anyway, this was just an, a little introduction. I would highly recommend checking out the book Tom Slick by Katherine Nixon Cook. And if you want to get into the weeds on... Um, The the hunt for Bigfoot and Yeti and how it ties in with the CIA and all kinds of other interesting history. uh, Definitely check out Searching for Sasquatch by Brian Regal. Both these are great books. Uh, I also Mm -hmm. uh, went back and uh, used uh, the chapter in Abominable Science on this as well from uh, Prothero and Loxton. So just great stuff. And and, um, again, you check the show notes. I'll put links to all those books. So
0: what a fascinating story. I mean, mummified Yeti hand and. Sir Edmund Hillary and Howard Hughes and, and
1: Jimmy Stewart. I mean, it is just
0: such a such a swashbuckling tale. Uh, it's it's a good one.
1: It's romance and adventure and sex and violence mm-hmm. and crashes. Yep. It's, oh yeah, it's good stuff indeed.
0: Well, yeah. Oh, so one more thing that we have in our notes that we didn't mention, just a kind of tangential thing. But Tom's stepfather was once kidnapped at gunpoint and held to ransom by machine gun. Kelly. Yeah, that Not is
1: such, rest. yeah, it's, it's like, for me, it's like, it's clearly an important part of their family history, right? It clearly is. And I think it may have oh, led to Tom carrying okay. a gun for the rest of his life. I think he was frequently armed because of, like, he didn't That's want to- That's what I yeah, heard, yeah.
0: yes. Just, yeah, just a remarkable story.
1: But they didn't kill Tom's uh, stepfather. He actually, they paid the ransom and he got away.
0: Yeah, it was like a ransom of $200.
1: Yeah, yeah. but they had- uh,
0: At the time a lot.
1: The FBI went after the Kelly gang, and ultimately, I think uh, Tom stepfather even went to see uh, Machine Gun Kelly in prison and said prison had not been kind. But Machine Gun Kelly's wife was like, We should have shot that bastard, like, we we definitely should not have turned him over, like, because like, everybody got arrested, you know, it, it like, and they all blamed mm. it on the oh. fact that they didn't kill the, the victim. So, um, quite a state, mm. quite a story, yeah.
0: Oh. Oh yeah! On top of everything else, too, it's just indeed a remarkable story, and, uh, and it's definitely like a, a, urge uh, listeners to read in, read up on it more if they're interested. Yeah,
1: and I and I, I mean again, his legacy may not be done. He's got these institutes still out there working in his name. So you know, who knows? That, anyway, that's our introduction to Tom Slick. Uh, quite an American character.
0: Yeah, the s- story continues. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. <laughs>
1: Well, um,
0: fun to talk about.
1: It was. I really enjoyed this. And it was great fun researching it. And I appreciate you talking with me about it.
0: Oh, yeah. Thank you for all the research that you've done, too. You really read a lot on this.
1: (laughs) It was good. It was fun. It was fun. I had a good time. Monster Talk. You've been listening to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm Blake Smith.
0: And I'm Karen Stoltzner
1: you just heard a monster talk discussion about the fascinating life of millionaire philanthropist entrepreneur and paranormal adventurer tom slick check our show notes for links to the books used in the research for this episode we hope you've enjoyed this episode of monster talk each episode we strive to bring you the very best in monster related content with a focus on bringing scientific skepticism into the conversation if you enjoy monster talk we now have a variety of ways to support the show, all with convenient links at monstertalk.org forward slash support. That's monstertalk.org forward slash support. We have links there to our Patreon page as well as a donation button. Another great way to support the show is to buy books from our Amazon Monster Talk wish list, which directly helps us with our research. We love used books very much, so don't feel compelled to buy new ones. And we love Kindle, so we can share our digital libraries with each other. And finally, without spending any money at all, you can support us by leaving a positive review at iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Positive reviews help keep us visible in iTunes, which is a great way to help us find new listeners. And please share our show on your favorite social media platforms. Monster Talk's a proud member of the Airwave Media Podcast Network, home of such shows as Therapist Uncensored, Subtext, and Small Things Often. If you'd like to advertise on this show, contact sales at advertisecast.com. Monster Talk theme music is by Peach Stealing Monkeys. And Karen and I thank you for making Monster Talk part of your listening life.